Why don't you put your songbooks aside and let's open our Bibles, would you, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We continue on with our study entitled Devoted. Devoted. And we get the top the title for this study from Acts 2:42 where it says that they devoted themselves. So we have for a number of weeks now been studying the devoted. We began by by studying who the devoted were. Who the devoted were. And this is where every it must start for everyone. It really needs to begin with the things that come before verse 42. The devoted were those who had heard and received the gospel of Jesus Christ, had obediently followed the Lord in baptism, and been added to the church. That's what we see in verse 41, where it says, So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now that is the absolute baseline. That is the stuff of the evangelist sermon. When the evangelist says Christ is the exalted Lord, that's the point one needs to come to. Before anything else in all the world, he needs to come to that realization of receiving the good news of Christ, publicly identifying with him in baptism, being added to the church. That's the baseline. Now, of all those people who have been changed that way, there are certain things that they need to be devoted to. We've been able to go through two of them. The first was the apostles' teaching and then the fellowship. Now, I'm sure that you've been meditating on how you could further apply these things, but let's say you're a young person sitting on the front row and you think, how can I give myself to the apostles' doctrine? Well, you can bring your Bible to church. You can sit through a church service. You can try to sit still in a church service so you can hear and other people can hear. You can bring things to church to help you remember what you hear. Like when you're at school and your teacher teaches you something, you just don't sit back and twiddle your thumbs. You sit forward, you have your pencil, you have your paper, you take notes. There's lots of things you can do to apply yourself to what God has said in the Bible. And you can even further put that together with what comes next when it talks about the fellowship. These people devoted themselves to other people who had trusted the Lord as Savior. Their neighbors who'd been so impacted by the preaching of Peter. So you could say, well, how do I give myself to that? Well, young person, you could get up from a Sunday service and go find someone with a head of white hair and talk to them about the service because you're devoted to the apostles' teaching and to other people who believe the same. Go find someone older than you you can talk to the Lord about. That'd be a wonderful way to be devoted to this kind of thing. Now, I know that's just an example for a young person. Uh, There's obviously many, many more things that we're going to do. We're going to give ourselves to studying and meditating on God's word throughout the week. We're going to give ourselves to one another as we pray for each other, as we go get a fan so the person next to us feels better on a Sunday service when it's hot. We're going to do all kinds of things to show that we really care about other people who love the Lord. 
because we're committed to them. But those are the kinds of things that you meditate on and you work to apply. Because we as God's people are just supposed to be the devoted. That's supposed to be us. Devoted to the apostles' doctrine. Devoted to the fellowship. Now, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's turn to the third activity that God's people were devoted to. It was the breaking of bread. Let's consider this together. Father, as we go to this passage and as we consider what it says and what it means for us today, we ask that you would give us a willing heart to receive, an open ear to hear, and uh, Lord, uh, a desire a desire to be devoted in this way. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. Francis Scott Key witnessed the 25-hour bombardment of Fort McHenry, and he did so from the British ship that was anchored just about four miles offshore. Of course, he was on that ship because he was a lawyer, and he was trying to negotiate the release of an American civilian, but he was detained on that boat on that day. On September 14, 1814, the dawn's early lights began to show. And when it did, he jotted down some lines which have now become our national anthem. Say, so what does our national anthem celebrate? Well, it celebrates the fact that after all of that, the American flag was still standing. You said there's something wondrously inspiring about that. Despite the rocket's red glare, the soldiers remained there in their fort, at their post. They would not give in. They would not give up. They were devoted. In Acts chapter 2, we also have a story, but one of far greater devotion. Their devotion was not to the land of the free and the home of the brave, but their devotion was instead to Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. And there were about 3,000 people who had committed themselves to Jesus. Now, these people were already, before this day, very, very religious people. But on this day of Pentecost, they heard and received the gospel. They publicly submitted to baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, and they joined their neighbors who responded likewise. They started the first church. Look at Acts 2.41. Those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Those were the people who were devoted, and they were devoted to the greatest of all, Jesus Christ. How were they devoted? It wasn't because they were holding up a flag in a fort like the brave Americans did. Instead, they were devoted by giving themselves to four activities. And it does us good to focus on what those activities were. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You see, the first activity 
that they devoted themselves to set themselves under their head, under the Lord Jesus Christ. When you give yourself to the apostles' teaching, you're submitting yourself to what God says. The second activity is what bound them in fellowship to their neighbors who love God. They gave themselves to the fellowship. People, the ones who trusted in Christ, who lived next door. Now today let's consider the third activity to which they were devoted, which is the breaking of bread. We need to begin by asking the question, what is the breaking of bread? I'm going to argue that it refers to the Lord's Supper. It refers to the Lord's Supper. I say that because the breaking of bread can refer to eating a meal together. Look at verse 46. 46 says, day after day, uh, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They receive their food with, glad, with gladness and generous hearts. This is probably referring to just having a meal together. This is nothing out of the ordinary than a day-to-day meal. And there's other examples of this kind of thing, like at the end of Luke's gospel where Jesus ate a meal with his disciple. Luke 24 verse 30 says, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. It sounds like a normal meal. And that's the same kind of format that happened with other meals, even the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Listen to it. Matthew 15 says that Jesus took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. So breaking bread was just having a meal. But as we try to consider what does breaking bread mean in Acts 2.42, we have to consider the context Because this is one of the four activities of those who were devoted. And it seems that having a meal isn't really on par with all the other activities, like the apostles' teaching, or the fellowship, or prayers. Just having a meal doesn't seem to really match up with how important those other things are. So as a matter of devotion, the breaking of bread refers to the Lord's Supper. It's an activity they were devoted to. And it's also the record that we have of what the early church did. If you go forward in Acts 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when they came together to break bread, Paul talked to them. So they were devoted to the Lord's Supper. They were devoted to hearing God's word preached. And they did that on Sunday when they gathered together. That's just a snapshot of what the church did. That's a normal experience. But perhaps just to really nail down the point, is this really talking about the Lord's Supper or is it talking about a church potluck? You could turn to 1 Corinthians 11 where we find that the Apostle Paul is going to place a greater priority on the Lord's Supper than having a meal. And perhaps what makes this whole discussion of what it's referring to difficult is the fact that The Lord's Supper was often enjoyed at the end of a meal. To make this very plain for you and me, the Lord's Supper was usually the end of the church potluck. So sometimes it's hard to to, to pull them apart. But I want you to look at what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another, goes, another gets drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Now, obviously, Paul's dealing with a problem in the church of Corinth. There were problems between the people. There were those who had and those who had not. There were those who were feasting and those who were going hungry. What we read here is not what we read in Acts 2 and Acts 4, where people's hearts were knit together and they were sharing all those things that they had. This church wasn't doing that. And Paul's saying, that's a problem. So he gives them instructions about their church potluck before the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. You see, Paul is Paul's saying, hey, you all can eat at home. But it's the Lord's Supper that you're supposed to share when you're together. Having a meal, you can do that at home. The Lord's Supper, that is something you do together. That is indispensable. That is essential. And we're not going to address all the particulars that Paul goes into in this passage at this time, but I just want you to notice that the Lord's Supper was what was more important than a simple meal. That's why the church devoted itself to it in the beginning, and that's why as you look through church history, the church has regularly observed the Lord's Supper through hundreds of years. So, the breaking of bread refers to the Lord's Supper. Now, let's go on by considering what is the point of the breaking of bread. Why would we do this? Kids, do you ever think about that? You see us observe the Lord's Supper, you see us pass around the bread and the cup, and you think, why are they doing this? We're trying to understand that right now. We're going to give you an answer to your question right now. The breaking of bread is a remembrance of the Lord's death. As 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim... The Lord's death until he comes. So the supper points to Christ's death. And the elements of the supper point to Christ's sacrifice. The bread and the cup symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus. That's why Jesus said in 1 Corinthians 11, The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. He held up the piece of bread said, This is my body, which is for you. Then he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus is making a connection between the two elements, the cup and the bread, and his body and his blood. So they represent that. They are not actually his body and blood. They represent it. And I say that point because I know some of you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, where you were taught that the Eucharist is the actual body and blood of Jesus. That's not what Jesus was saying. It represents that. Now, why did Jesus talk about his body and his blood? Without any context, that might be a really strange thing to start talking to people about. My blood and my body. Why would he do that? Why would he connect them to two elements from a meal? 
Why did he do that? We don't have to wonder because Jesus tells us exactly why he did. This is from Matthew's gospel in the Last Supper when Jesus shared it with his disciples. He says this, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus was trying to teach them that he was sacrificing his body and blood so that there could be the forgiveness of sins. There's this point. He highlights those things because he wants the disciples to know this is the cost of forgiveness. And of course, the Jewish people for hundreds of years had seen animals uh, had their blood shed and their bodies given an offering and sacrifice. They knew about this. Their blood was shed. But we know that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And any thoughtful Israelite knew that the sacrifices being offered weren't enough. There was something one day which would have to settle the issue. But Jesus then comes and he says that he gives his life as a ransom for many. And Peter tells us that Christ bore in his body our sins. When he was on the tree. So he offered himself. And his sacrifice was one and done. That's in contrast to the Israelites who daily had to offer sacrifices. Instead, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of all the ages to put away sin for the, by the sacrifice of himself. The big theological truth is that it doesn't take a whole bunch of these things for forgiveness to be settled. Jesus' single sacrifice accomplished eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.12 says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So young people, as you see the, the bread and the cup passed on a given Sunday, what those things are pointing to is Christ's death, his sacrifice. And it's the eating that reminds us of our forgiveness through that sacrifice. Because Jesus said, he gave them this instruction. Take, eat, this is my body. Drink of it, all of you. So it's when we eat these elements that an individual participates in Christ's sacrifice. To say it really simply... In the eating of the bread and drinking of the cup, one is acknowledging Christ sacrificed himself for me. That's the response of faith. It believes that Jesus' body was sacrificed for me. It is actually where we, it's where we take the promise of God and we personalize it. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? Because this is a point you must understand. You see, anyone can believe that Jesus came and died for sinners. I mean, Jesus' name means that he will save his people from their sins. But holding that Christian doctrine can come up short of saving faith. Why? Because the doctrine might not have been personally applied. The doctrine is he died for sinners, but the great question is, the all-important question is this, did he die for you? 
Do you sing, his blood availed for me? Do you sing, for me it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will but thine. Do you sing, my hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary? That is faith. And it's when we partake of these elements in the Lord's Supper that we remember his body was broken for me. For me. That's what Jesus intends. This is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. Now, does eating the bread and drinking the cup save you? Does participating in the Lord's Supper or some of you grew up with the Catholic Mass, does doing that save you from hell and secure a place for you in heaven? Well, there are some who teach that at least it improves your odds. You'll have a better chance of getting to heaven as long as you go to as many of those things as possible. But I want you to notice the reason why Jesus commanded us to do this. The question is, did Jesus tell us to do this so that we'd get into heaven? Well, that's not what he said. What did Jesus say? In numerous places, 1 Corinthians 11, Luke chapter 22, Jesus said this, Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. So it's in the eating of these elements that we remember Christ's sacrifice. This is not a real sacrifice, as if Jesus' body and blood are actually being offered again. This is a purposeful calling to mind what has already happened. And this kind of thing comes up all the time these days. You pick up your phone, you open up social media, and all of a sudden you see a memory. Perhaps it was when your kids were smaller, just babies, crying, crawling, whatever it is. And you think, aw. Or years ago we used to have what's known as photo albums. And we would open those up. And we would think about all those times we shared with our spouse and those special dates we went on. And it's just a wonderful thing. It's really sweet to look back. But you know that there are times when you and I look back and it's not always so pleasant. We think about something in the past and it brings pain. It brings disappointment. And when we dwell on those things, it can really quickly lead us to spiral into despair You know that dwelling on past sin and failures can be really dangerous, actually. It can put you in a really bad place. So isn't it very wise and very kind of Jesus to institute an ordinance which is meant to be a continual reminder of forgiveness? I'll tell you, that's really thinking. That's a really good idea because we are so prone to go back in despair And the Lord would have us go back and remember forgiveness. And think about it. Is there any more pleasant memory than Jesus died for my sins? That's about as good as it gets. It's this memory that you need when you are awake at night, doubting whether or not you're really a Christian. It's this memory that you need when you're disappointed because you have sinned again. It's this memory that you need when you see that your days on earth are coming to a close and you'll stand before Jesus Christ soon. You need to remember forgiveness. 
through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice for you. So it's in the eating of the Lord's Supper that you preach the gospel to yourself. You've already considered what the breaking of the bread is, how it points to Christ's death. Now lastly this morning, how were they devoted to the breaking of bread? How were they devoted to this? Now it wasn't simply that they had it. Instead, they were devoted as they obediently observed the Lord's Supper in a worthy way. Let's unpack that. Those who were devoted ought to thoughtfully obey Christ's command to observe the Lord's Supper. Why should they do this? Because Jesus said repeatedly, do this. This is not meant to be optional. This is something you must do. So are you committed in your heart today to, con- to eat the Lord's Supper, which we have once a month on the first Sunday of the month? Are you committed to that? Absolutely. That is something you believe you must do because Jesus said, do it. You say, what causes someone to hesitate to participate? Well, obviously, if you're not a believer in the Lord, if you're not united to Jesus Christ, why would you go to the Lord's Supper where you celebrate forgiveness when in your heart you are completely against submitting yourself to him as Lord? Right. So this is something for Christians only. But what about people who are united to Christ? Why might that person hesitate? What causes a person to feel that they're not worthy to eat? Well, someone might think, well, I don't think I should eat the Lord's Supper today because I had, I had a bad week. You know, maybe next time I'll have a better week leading up to the Lord's Supper, and then I'll feel like I, like I can participate. Is that thinking right? I want you to consider this answer to the question, how should, or who should come to the Lord's table? One person said, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sin, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that the remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. We must not forget that all these people who were devoted were also self-proclaimed sinners and remained sinners until glory. So sin in general isn't supposed to be a reason for anyone to hesitate to participate in the Lord's Supper. I mean, the very focus issue that the Lord's Supper deals with is sin. The sacrifice was for our sin. So we ought to obey the command to do this. Sorrow over sin is no reason to be disobedient to Christ's command. It's a reason to participate and therefore thereby remember. Now that said, the devoted must thoughtfully examine themselves regarding their fellowship with Christ and with other people. Sin can actually be a reason not to partake if you won't let go of the sin in your life, if you're determined to live in that sin. You know, it's hypocritical to pretend to celebrate forgiveness through Christ, but then be living in sin and plotting your next sin. That's hypocritical. 
And Christ's command is to get on the right side of sin, where you're agreeing, what I've done is sinful, what I've done is wrong. And once you come to Christ's side on the matter of your sin, then his command is partake. There's no probation period needed. 1 Corinthians 11 says, let a person examine himself, then, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So only after examination, you are to participate. But after examining yourself, you must participate. Say, Pastor, can you just make this simple for me? What am I supposed to examine? I come to the Lord's Supper, what am I supposed to do? Here you go. You should examine sin in your life between you and God. And you should examine sin in your life between you and your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Of course, by extension, any of your neighbors as well. But start with that. It's the Lord's Supper, so there needs to be fellowship between you and the Lord. You say, does sin jeopardize my relationship with God? No, you will always be a child of God once you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior. However, when you sin, you set yourself against God. So you need to make that right. You need to seek forgiveness of anything that God brings to mind. You need to deal with what you know is a problem. You don't need to pull a Martin Luther and spend days and hours trying to rack your brain for what you might have done wrong. Deal with what you know you've done wrong. Submit yourself. Seek God's mercy. Secondly, this supper is participation with the body of Christ, that is the local church. 1 Corinthians 10 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Paul is saying that it's not just between you and God you should examine, but between you and the body of Christ. That is us right here, the local church. You see, Paul was addressing the issue in that church of Corinth. He says to them in the following instructions, I don't commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. They were having all these interpersonal problems, and Paul says, deal with them. You say, that sounds uncomfortable. Maybe, but Paul says that is essential, that you handle all of those things. But if you fail to handle them, if you fail to examine yourself and your relationship with your brothers and sisters in the Lord, and you go ahead and partake anyway, that would be partaking in an unworthy way. It would make you guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's what Paul says. So this is no small situation. You have to do this. So the people who were devoted to the breaking of bread, they obediently participated in it, and they did so in a worthy way, which means they humbly examined themselves and then ate and drank. That's what the devoted do. Now, we think about being devoted, and sometimes we think of things that are quite heroic. We think of the Americans who stood the bombardment, at Fort McHenry. And indeed, that is wondrously amazing and brave. But what we must be committed to and devoted to is Jesus Christ. Say, how do I do that? 
be devoted to the Lord's Supper, where you regularly remind yourself of what he did for you and settle any matters between you and him and you and others. That's how we be devoted. Father, may we commit ourselves in these ways to following you, showing what you say matters most to us because we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. May we be committed to the breaking of bread. May we do so in a worthy manner. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.